This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to Up Next. I'm Marty Lasden, and on this edition, we consider the future of being dead. My guest is Robert Pogue Harrison. He's an Italian literature professor at Stanford University, and he's the author of The Dominion of the Dead, an absolutely fascinating book that examines the complicated ways that the living relate to the dead and what those relations say about our culture. Professor Harrison, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I'm not dead yet, uh, but I do have the strong impression that being dead isn't at all what it used to be. That unless you're someone like, uh, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln or Groucho Marx, uh, being dead does not command the uh, respect uh, or the attention that it once did. Do you think I'm wrong? When it comes to the, our public world, I think you're absolutely right. The authority, power, and charisma of the dead has been greatly diminished in our time compared to antiquity or even uh, earlier periods of our modern era, for sure. So why do you think that is? Well, it could be because there are so many more dead today than there were in the past. It could be because of the rise of um, certain technologies that we, I think we fail to appreciate how momentous is something like the invention of uh, recording technologies. We're now the late 19th century, early 20th century. For the first time in human history, people could hear the dead speak in their own voices. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing with the televisual images. And we are, without maybe being aware of it, completely surrounded by the imagistic presence of dead people and voices of dead people. And perhaps there has developed such a crowd of the dead in our lives that we uh, naturally just fail to take the same kind of notice that, that we would have in the past when, for example, it was the poet who was the medium by which the dead spoke to the living. And one of the arguments I make in my book is that there is a certain kind of wisdom or counsel that only the dead can provide the living when the living uh, go astray and end up in dead ends or in certain kind of crises that uh, they themselves are not able through their own resources to resolve. Mm -hmm. And that is, these are crucial moments when you have to turn to uh, those voices from the, uh, from the dead. And I'm thinking that this can happen in an individual's life. Dante's Divine Comedy, for example, begins in a crisis where uh, one particular uh, individual is in an impasse, and it's through the appearance of a ghost, Virgil in his case, 1,300-year-old ghost who comes to, um, to his rescue and reorients him. I'm thinking also in the crisis of, an, of, a, of a nation uh, like we had in, in, during the Civil War, mm -hmm. where Lincoln uh, realizes that he has to turn also to the founders. You know, as, as you look at human history, uh, so much of the relationship that we're talking about here between the living and the dead... Um, was, if not based, and certainly reinforced by superstition. Uh, you mentioned ghosts. 
Uh, I mean, if you take superstition uh, out of uh, out of the equation, uh, doesn't that inevitably make the relationship between the living and the dead less compelling? Let's think about that. And the notion of superstition, certainly we can say that in historical times, ancient times, the living truly believed that the dead maintained an afterlife in their graves. And therefore they fed them and they had funereal repasts and moments where they needed nourishment, they needed their tools, they needed their swords and their honors and so forth. So there was a sense that at that site... Uh, the dead were still uh, kind of living in, in some sense. We could say we could call that a superstition. I Look, would call it that. Would you? What would you call it? Something different? Well, I I won't give it a word yet because I would then want to ask why do people who believe that that is a superstition nevertheless fall into patterns of behavior and psychic um, dispositions where if they lose a loved one, so for example in nine eleven where mm-hmm. there was uh, many cases of bodies that were just irretrievable. And loved ones falling into a state of, you know, psychic uh, turmoil uh, and uh, and despair because they needed any little remnant of a mortal remain. And it it could be just a a strand of DNA or some kind of little thing. And that without that little remnant, they could not initiate a process of allowing the dead to become dead. You write in your book, quote, it is impossible to overestimate how much human culture owes in principle and in origin to the corpse. Uh, you also write that to be human means, above all, to bury. Uh, now, as I'm sure you know, many, uh, uh, many more people are not being buried at all these days. They're being cremated. And many of these cremations are occurring without much in the way of fanfare, certainly out of the view of mourners. From your, from your perspective, is that a disturbing trend? I think it's a personal choice for people. For me, it, I, I would find it disturbing in my case because I try to think of how much would be lost had uh, many of the dead not been buried in such a way that the sight where they're buried can be marked and can still serve as a point of reference. You go to the uh, Père Lachaise in in cemetery in Paris, and you will see on any given day hundreds, if not thousands, of young people who otherwise would never go into a cemetery going to pay pilgrimage to the tomb of Jim Morrison of the Doors. Mm. And you say, well, what if Jim Morrison had been cremated and his ashes ashes were scattered into it would have been a personal choice physically perfectly fine but look what is the difference between having one kind of marker for a life that has been had been and not having a marker yeah i believe that it's these marks these um monuments tombstone whatever that that uh, have been the foundation of our cities and our civic life and our memorials and so forth. So uh, I would not actually relish a future moment where uh, all human beings leave absolutely no trace of themselves. Yeah. But is it the reality of our culture uh, such that, 
you know, grave sites are being visited less and less. And isn't it the reality, too, that corpses are becoming more and more invisible? Uh, you know, there's a woman named Caitlin Doty, uh, who's a mortician in L.A., and she wrote a book called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which recounts her experiences in a crematorium. And she makes the point that we're getting so good at hiding away both the dead and the dying that it's becoming easier for us to all believe that we're immortal. Uh, you, you think she's right? I do. I really do think she's right. And uh, that raises a whole other really disturbing question of whether we um, have, we, we don't make any room for the dead. Yeah. Not only in our lives, but we don't make room for the dead in our worlds. When one thinks of it from the historical point of view, our worlds have been the place of cohabitation between uh, the living and the dead. Even as our houses have, the ancient house was centered around, uh, you know, the sacred flame and altar where the presence of the ancestors uh, of that particular household kind of lived on. It, it is rather remarkable now that it's not altogether unlikely that we can go through our entire lives without ever seeing in person a corpse, which, you know, back in the 19th century, when, uh, first of all, mortality rates were higher and the vast majority of people died at home, uh, that would have been inconceivable. Um, I mean, we've gone from a trend from intimacy with human remains to one of estrangement, haven't we? And what we lose in losing that intimacy is also a, a certain kind of self-knowledge of ourselves as mortals. And we don't know how to relate to our own death, which is going to be an inevitability. And this is what I think one of the primary jobs that culture has to accomplish is enabling us to be mortal and to be able to uh, embrace our mortality in, in, in ways that don't depend just merely on, on um, idiosyncratic attitudes towards death. But we need a kind of shared language about our shared mortality. And the increasing casting away of the dying and the dead into a, a um, non-worldly places uh, leaves me, you, uh, uh, with, without sufficient resources in order to make my own mortality uh, relevant to me. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me when we're talking about trying to stay connected to the dead, I mean, even if we take superstition entirely off the table, we still have guilt. Yes. Right? And that's, that's never going to go away. And guilt is an interesting word. It, of course, in German, it's, it, it, it renders the idea even better because in, in German, the word schuld is the word for guilt as well as debt. So we, and I claim in my book that we are guilty vis-a-vis -vis the dead in the sense that we owe them a debt and that debt is outstanding and that in the same way that we are guilty vis-a-vis, -vis our, our, we, we owe a debt to our future. We are not the authors of our own worlds. We're not the authors of ourselves. We, um, everything that we are in ourselves and every, everything that we have in our world has been authored by the predecessors. But isn't part of the American dream self-authorship to be the product of one's own creation, to transcend one's ancestral baggage? Uh, 
Isn't that a very appealing part of uh, our, our culture as Americans? It is very appealing. It's appealing to me as well. Uh-huh. And I, I'm, I'm aware of how much the dead have tyrannized over the living in other cultures and other historical eras. And in fact, uh, even today, uh, in many places in the world, the living are in bondage and have been in bondage to the dead. So it was necessary for med- for in the modern era to come to some kind of um, revolution uh, to overthrow this absolute stranglehold that the dead have traditionally had. On yeah, the let, let me read a quote from your book. You say, we inherit the obsessions of the dead, assume their burdens, carry on their causes, promote their mentalities, their ideologies, and very often their superstitions, and often we die trying to vindicate their humiliations. That, that's an awful lot of baggage. Uh, and so, you know, one might reasonably ask is, are the dead really worth all that? I would reasonably ask the same question. Yeah. And I think it's imperative for, some, for, for our modern kind of consciousness to ask always that question, am I going to engage in this war, or is my nation going to engage in this war, or is my tribe or my ethnic thing, uh, because I want to vindicate the humiliations or the defeats of my ancestors, or because um, they hated each other centuries ago and so forth. We we see this syndrome all the time. Mm -hmm. Or can we uh, meet the dead on equal terms and say, no, that demand is too much. It's not reasonable. So I think a kind of uh, enlightened negotiation with the dead is um, good, which is a different thing than just ignoring their traditional authority altogether. I think we ignore them at our own at our own risk because then sometimes we can fall into doing their will without our even being aware of it, and that we just become their puppets again. We don't. I, I think that's not good either. So on, a, on a one to ten scale with 10 being entirely, totally paralyzed with fear, how afraid are you, are you of dying? Um, about one. Really? Yeah. See, on a good day, for me, it's a nine and a half. Is it? Yeah. 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 For me, you know, it's kind of like the Woody Allen line, that I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's kind of, yeah. but you're a one. That's, uh, explain to me how you're able to pull that off. I don't know. I, I really, uh, I know that uh, I'm exceptional in that regard. Mm-hmm. I don't myself understand the this kind of funk and terror of dying, because I guess I, I I think of death as the fulfillment rather than the termination of life, and I know that it's been there from the very start as the innermost possibility of, of uh, my life. I also take for consolation, if I need it, uh, the fact that every living creature, ever since there was life on Earth, has uh, gone right. on this path. We're all on the same boat. Death. Back in 1900, the average lifespan in this country was barely 50, barely 50. And I, even when I was a kid, I can recall when uh, people uh, dropped dead in their 60s, that was judged to be a perfectly respectable lifespan. Sure. Sure. Now it seems if you don't make it to at least 85, you're judged to be, uh, you know, uh, yeah. a, a loser. Right. I don't mean to right. channel Donald Trump here, right. but you know what I right. mean. I, yeah, I do. 
Yeah. I mean, it is a paradox that the longer our lifespans, the more death-averse we become. Yes. And, and, I know. and also, you know, know. I've, I've noticed that even when people are dying in their 80s, invariably there's a certain amount of finger-pointing that goes on. Exactly. Either the doctor screwed up or the, the dead screwed up. Either, you know, they didn't, they didn't exercise enough. They didn't quit smoking soon enough. They didn't eat enough broccoli. I mean, death is becoming... You know, increasingly unnatural, or, or viewed that way. Exactly, accusatory. Yeah. And, and you're right. And the older uh, the older one gets, it seems, the more one more tenaciously one holds on yeah. to that. And it's it's extraordinary that the the people who will brave death in the most reckless ways are the young. Otherwise, you couldn't send them to because war the like young that. feel they're immortal. Right? I guess they feel they're immortal, or, or they feel that there's there's such an intense um, vitality in in youth that uh, perhaps exposure to death or, or this kind of confrontation with death is, gives them the kind of intensity uh, of being alive that they require at that age. Let's talk a little bit about grief. I, I do think that it often evokes mixed emotions. Uh, like, for example, when my parents died, one thought I had was, you know, uh-oh, now I'm next. And, and, and to be brutally honest about it, I also registered a slight sensation of feeling liberated like okay now i'm my own parent i hear what you're saying and you know to be brutally honest i i can say that you know my father's early death premature death was something that uh you said you your know, father died when you were how old? 12 12 okay i was 12 and i have to say that although it was painful and traumatic and, and and it left its scars it was also a huge liberation it it uh, it removed from my world first thing a kind of authority figure who uh principal role is usually to say no yeah you can't do that or not it um changed the course of my family's life insofar as because he died then we moved to my to Rome, which is my mother's city, and I, and, I, and I never would have grown up in Europe and had frequented the kind of schools and things. But more than that, it, 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 it created room for me to be my own person, as you say. Yeah. And, and it's not entirely respectable to admit that sort of thing, is it? I don't know. Again, I have to say, I said <laughs> we have to be brutally honest, right. but the, when, the, when, the, uh, when people die, they leave space for others. And it, it would be um, overly pious just to say that that, that is not, doesn't have a, a liberating, and in some cases exhilarating uh, effect on, on Scary those. and exhilarating. Yes. Yeah. Right. yeah. Right. You've written a lot about Ralph Waldo Emerson, who uh, not only went through the death of his parents, in fact, I think his father died when he was eight years old, but he also lived to see the death of his first wife, a son and a brother, uh, but as you and others have pointed out, he had a rather peculiar reaction to those deaths. In fact, uh, one of his friends observed that he seemed to feed off the death of his loved ones. Does that in some sense make him, I don't know, a reprehensible character? No, but it makes him a very unusual character, and perhaps it makes him a, a very quintessential American character. His young son, Waldo, whom he adored, five-year-old boy, yeah. uh, in the journals, it's clear in, in the immediate aftermath how much he, uh, how much he grieved for that. But then w within a year, he, he said, I, 
it's as if it never, it's not as if it never happened, but it's as if something that was caduceus fell away from me and has left no mark. And he says, I grieve that grief has nothing to teach me mm. and that there's nothing more shallow than grief. And that's Emerson being Emerson until the end of his life, believing that there is um, something within the self which is immortal. Emerson's first wife, who by all accounts was a beautiful young woman, yes. died at age 20 of tuberculosis. Uh, one year after her, her death, he visits her tomb and decides to have her coffin opened up so that he can view her decomposed remains. Um, and maybe help me understand why maybe someone would want to do that. He might have even spent the night at that grave. So, yeah, so that, from a 21st century perspective, seems rather ghoulish, to say the right, least. Right. Uh, can, can you help me make sense of that? No, I can only speculate about what motivated him. And uh, he, he must have seen something there looking at, at uh, you know, the decomposing corpse, which uh, reaffirmed his faith in a certain kind of trans transcendental... Um, quality of, of a person where maybe saying the Ellen Tucker whom I love that wife she is not here in this body and that and therefore the body is just uh, belongs to this mortal world and that there must be uh, some other place where uh, you know where the where the soul still but, but, but someone else looking at that same decomposed body might have the opposite reaction. He or she might conclude there is no transcendental anything, right. that we're just all atoms, and that's the end of the story. Yeah, the truly uh, cynical interpretation would be to think that he, he felt like uh, he had been, he's favored by life so much that while all these other people are dying around him, he... Uh, he has been chosen mm -hmm. to survive and outlive. And maybe this fed some sense of that um, imperishability that, he, that he's so famous for. Well, what are your thoughts about the afterlife? I know you don't get into that in, in your book, and you talk about the afterlife only in a figurative sense, but, but, but certainly the status of the dead is inevitably impacted by what we think actually happens to them. Do you have any beliefs along these lines? No, I don't have any positive beliefs. And by the same token, I, I, I don't exclude, not that I don't exclude anything, but I, I don't exclude the possibility of an, of an afterlife, mm -hmm. uh, of the soul, what traditionally has been called the soul. But I certainly don't count on it, and I don't, I don't know how to conceive of it. Uh, so therefore, I like to conceive of the afterlife in purely secular terms, which is uh, the survival of the world and what kind of role I played in it while, you know, while I'm here. So this relationship between the living and dead that we've been talking about, how is it going? I mean, if this were a marriage, would we say that this is a marriage in serious trouble and we would need to call in the therapists? Uh, where, where, are we, where are we going with this relationship? I think the, the relationship would be uh, equivalent to a marriage that has been that has lasted a long time, and it's, uh, it's that it's getting a little, a little stale. Stale, yeah. yes, mm. in the sense that uh, the, the relations we maintain with the dead are, are have, have a long history, and it's getting that history is getting longer and longer, 
and we're we keep going back to the same uh, the same old group of the dead, especially on anniversaries and so on and so forth. And therefore, it's um, it need it's in need of revitalization. Uh, yeah. So that we need to bring back the spark. Yes. And how do we do that? Well, I think we're probably going to have to undergo a uh, an emergency and a crisis and come to terms in a way that we haven't for a long time. Come to terms with where where and how we actually need the Council of the Dead in these moments of emergency. And what the dead can do for us uh, in terms of, uh, that, w- that we cannot do for ourselves. And uh, what, what can they do for us that we can't do for ourselves? Well, first thing, they can, they can speak to us from per- perspectives outside of our own time, mm-hmm. our own timeliness and our own social, um, the narrowness of our, of our little uh, horizon of present. They can um, remind us of a great many things that have occurred in the history of our species or our civilization. And then finally, and this is something that they do day in and day out for anyone who reads literature, for example, or reads novels, that they, they, these posthumous voices, this is how I got interested in this topic, because being a literary scholar, I, I realized one day with a shock that I spend most of my time conversing or communing with dead voices, and that these voices are still speaking to me across some kind of threshold. Mm-hmm. And that uh, from one point of view, literally, these are just dead words, marks on a page. But when I put my life into them, all of a sudden, these voices that come from the past are, are alive again. And that I enlarge the sphere of my interlocutors when I open myself up to those, to those voices. Mm-hmm. And Lord knows we need more interlocutors. And we don't just need our contemporaries to speak to us. We need voices from uh, different periods of our history in order to, if nothing else, remind us of just how much we are the products yeah. of a long history. You and I are both baby boomers. In fact, we're exactly the same age. I turned 60 in April, yeah. so we're right, we're right in the same neighborhood. Um, and it occurs to me that in the absence of some huge medical breakthrough, which is at the, at the moment not on the horizon, Within the next few decades, we, we, you and I, and our generation is going to be entirely gone. Mm-hmm. When our generation, when the last of us kicks off, um, uh, how do you think we as a generation will be remembered, and how do you think we should be remembered? Uh, hard to say. You know, I don't have a crystal ball. It's possible that we could be remembered with great resentment as um, a highly self-centered generation. Spoiled, self-indulgent. Who consumed all, uh, you know, most of the banquet. We we sat down, we got got all the good, we left the crumbs behind. On the other hand, I think that what we, what our our generation contributed in terms of popular culture and music and and, uh, a liberation in lifestyles and in mores and it's an unbelievable rev- cultural revolution that took place thanks to and because of uh, the baby boomer generation. And the future generations are 
going to be the beneficiaries of that. And we should not discount how important these um, social and cultural gains have, have been, thanks mm -hmm. to our generation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Professor Harrison, thank you so much for doing the program. Thank you. Appreciate Pleasure it. To be You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.